You are now listening to the E-Watchman Podcast with your host, Robert King. Yeah, like the guy said, my name is Robert King. And, uh, wow, you know, it's been a long time since we've done a podcast. Do you know when the last podcast was? It was back in June of 2018. That is too long. And, of course, I did some what I called uh, Watchman Radio uh, but I I had to upload them onto YouTube because the music I was using could only be licensed on uh, certain platforms. So uh, I didn't call them podcasts, but essentially that's what they were. But anyway, I'm back to the old format here. I entertain questions, uh, might read the daily text if it's interesting. And I hope instead, I was, when I was doing podcasts, I was doing them uh, on a monthly basis, but uh, let's, let's up it here a little bit and try to do this on a weekly, a weekly program. I think that's very doable. Uh, there's always something to talk about. And there is a lot happening in the world, in the world of politics, and, you know, there's this... Everyone can sense that there's this uh, upheaval taking place and people aren't really sure where it's going to lead. Is it going to be something good or is it, you know, this climate change thing has just like gripped people in this hysteria that they're putting out the idea that we've only got 10 years it was 15, now it's down to 10 years if we don't change our habits, like stop breathing. You know, we're all exhaling CO2, right? But yeah, that's, that's, the, uh, that's, that's the official line of the United Nations. We've got 10 years to make these drastic changes. Young people are especially vulnerable to being, you know, manipulated by this sort of thing, and they have been, obviously. But the irony is we probably have uh, less than 10 years. <laughs> Not that the ice caps are going to melt, but that the whole shebang is going to come down. And really, that's, uh, that's really what is behind this climate change hysteria. And in fact, the banks came out Mark Carney, the, uh, he's the departing head of the Bank of England, the most powerful central bank in the world. He said that 130 of the biggest banks were all on board with uh, this greening of the world, meaning that they have agreed to choke off credit to any industry that they deem is polluting the environment that would, of course, be coal and automotive and you know any kind of smokestack industry. Uh, they're going to be cut off 
from funds from the biggest banks in the world. And they want to funnel all new investment into green whatever. And, of course, they've positioned themselves to receive all sorts of government largest, you know, for their uh, projects to save the world. So that tells you right there, this old climate change scare is a massive hoax run by the bankers who run this this system of things. And if they can get the governments on board, uh, which apparently they have, it really is, you know, it's it's the official policy of what we call the British Empire, uh, that the world is way overpopulated. And that's been their policy for 150 years. Back before the world had a billion people even, it was overpopulated. And now that it has something like 8 billion, it's way overpopulated and we have to start getting rid of uh, a number of you fine folks. But since no one is volunteering, I guess they're just going to have to start at the bottom, you know, and choke off third world countries. And, uh, of course, the poor are always the the most vulnerable. I don't know if they're going to pull it off, though, because their entire financial system is a bit wobbly, as they might say in the UK. And... That's becoming more and more apparent, especially in the last month here in the United States. The Federal Reserve, the central bank of the United States, has been uh, performing what they call a repo operation. You know, the banks have to clear their accounts every day, and they involve billions and billions of dollars of uh, currency exchanges, uh, derivatives, settlements, and all kinds of uh, currency swaps, transactions, what have you. And uh, they might not have liquidity, and so they borrow money short-term from the central bank. Well, the central bank has been, uh, to, to, to put up collateral, they have to have as a uh, set aside treasury. So the central bank buys the, the other bank's uh, treasury notes. They call that the repo. And sometimes they pay them back. But for the last m- month, the Federal Reserve has been running this repo operation. And it's tens of billions of dollars on a daily basis. Uh, Sometimes it's reached a hundred billion over their limit. There's a, supposedly a limit of, I think, seventy billion. Well, what that means is that a big bank is in trouble. At least one that it cannot uh, settle its accounts, and they don't dare say who it is. But all the other banks know, and they won't loan money to it. So the Federal Reserve is like the little boy, you know, the Dutch boy with his finger in the dike, you know, to keep the whole thing from blowing out like it did 10 years ago. And this repo operation, they said, well, it's going to be over, you know, the first part of October. Well, that's come and gone. November. Now they've kicked it out to the first of the year. So we're talking about on this nightly repo operation, it's it's going to amount to like 
a trillion, more than a trillion? There's no end to it, apparently. But that's, they have to, you know, try to keep it together. But I think at some point, and I, and I think, and I've commented on this, but I think that's why the, they're so desperate to get rid of Donald Trump. Because they must not think he is their guy. Because his predecessor, uh, the banking problem really started, you know, before President Obama took over. He inherited a mess, but he fixed it for the banks and it cost taxpayers, they say, $23 trillion. And, uh, you know, they've been doing fine for the last 10, 11 years. The rich do keep getting richer and uh, the poor get poorer. That's the way their system works. Uh, but now they're back to where they were when this thing nearly blew out. Some of you may not remember, but first Bear Stearns went under and it was patched over. That was in the spring of 2008, I think. And then Lehman Brothers went under. And then uh, Merrill Lynch blew out. It was a domino effect. And they they sold off Merrill Lynch, I think, to Bank of America. But Lehman's was this liquidated, and it, it froze up the system. And they had an emergency meeting over the weekend. Uh, poor President Bush at the time, he said, this sucker could go down. <laughs> and he, he was right. It, and they should have let it. They should have let it because uh, what what good has it done? The trillions that they put back into the banking system, they, you know, the corporations get free money now because they've lowered interest rates and they're, you know, buying back their own stock and paying themselves huge uh, bonuses. And but none of it has really gone into the productive economy, right? It's just all froth, speculation. So they should have let it blow and then it started over. But now the bubble is bigger, the debt is much larger, and we're back to that that moment when uh, this sucker could come down, <laughs> as George Bush so eloquently said. And uh, this sucker is going to come down, and Jehovah's Witnesses well know that. They just don't know exactly how. Uh but yeah, that's why they want to take out this president, I, I think. And if the impeachment doesn't work, well, they've got other ways. A certain senator the other I mean, it's crazy. This world is so evil. I mean, it's really becoming so apparent. When Donald Trump, you know, I, I thought it was a joke when he was running for president. I remember my wife and I both looked at each other. We thought... And we burst out laughing, you know, but he said he was going to put an end to the perpetual war, which is, of course, the intention of the British to involve the United States in their forever wars. For I won't get into that, but and so here Donald Trump has made every effort to, strangely enough, you know, make good on his campaign promise, which is very rare for any politician. And this week, he's talked about bringing the troops out of Syria. And you would think, you know, that, that people say, yeah, that's a good idea. What business, you know. But 
both parties are, have just gone crazy and the, and the media about what a terrible thing this is. And one senator said, you know, we're over there uh, to destroy al-Qaeda and they could come back and this could really harm the United States. <sighs> People, did, do they realize that British and American intelligence invented al-Qaeda? Going back to bin Laden, they recruited these guys to fight the Soviet Union. And then the Soviet Union collapsed. They stayed on the payroll. They've armed and trained them. They turned them loose against Syria to take Syria out because it would be bad for America's image if they sent American troops in and invaded a sovereign nation. So they used these mercenaries called al-Qaeda. And if... Vladimir Putin hadn't stepped in and taken them out, that they would have succeeded. So, but that tells me that uh, it may be another 9-11 type thing that they'll use these Al-Qaeda guys, give them a nuclear weapon or something, you know, a little suitcase nuke and have them uh, really set it off. And then, uh, but we're at that don't you see that we're at that stage in history that it's over? This system of things is winding down. And like Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour, but baby, we are <laughs> close. We are close. Well, I uh, was commenting on, on my uh, comment section there. We had a new visitor. I asked him if he had any questions because he said he's learning. And so he did have a question. He said, what signs should we look for for the end of the system as a lot has seemed to come close, but then it, 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 we back away from the brink. And that's true. I agree with that sentiment. I thought, I thought we were going to blow up back 10 years ago. But uh, after 9-11, 2001, I thought, you know, things don't always work that way in a linear line, you know. Um, and he also asked the follow-up question, how does the Watchtower fit into all this? Hold that question in your mind. Uh, because... I had another question in the mail a few days ago, maybe a week or so, and I've overlooked it, but someone asked me to comment contrasting uh, the unjust economic system that we live under now with what the Bible holds out for the future in line with what is uh, foreshadowed by the Jubilee. And I think the questioner got that Idea because I noticed in the, uh, I think it's the December 2019 or maybe January of next year, there's an article on the Jubilee and uh, what it pictures, how, how it's really being fulfilled now with Christians being set free. But it also has, uh, obviously, uh, application for the future. Well, you know, the Bible doesn't say much about the economic system in the new world. It is interesting, though, the English word economy comes from the Greek word ekonomia, 
And the New World Translation translates economia as administration. So to administer a household, that's the in economy. So that's basically what the kingdom is going to do is to regulate the affairs of human society. You know, I took up gardening just a few years ago. I wasn't all that serious about it, but uh, my wife, she is always an indoor girl, you know, I mean... She just had no interest in outdoor things. I tried to take her camping, you know, and it just—it was rather comical. It just didn't work, you know. Her idea of roughing it is going to a hotel where they don't have room service, you know. But anyway, uh, after I planted the first garden, and I planted her a little herb garden, and she kind of, you know, poked around in that. I thought it was kind of cool that you could pick leaves off of (laughs) a a little bush and and bring it in and put it on your pasta or salad or whatever. But then the next year, um, she took more of an interest. And the following year, and she sort of just took over the whole gardening operation. And I I do the heavy work, you know, like with the rototiller and bring in compost and and maybe go buy some starters. But now she is like a full-fledged gardener. She doesn't want any starters, and she plants everything from seed, or she said she's going to next year. She did a lot this year. But it was so rewarding for me to see her open up to to the, the, to gardening, to nature. And she used to be fearful of bugs and squeamish, and now she... She's out digging in the dirt, and she she saves the you know every bug that she can, unless unless they're eating on her tomatoes, in which case she ruthlessly dispatches them, you know. But I mean, she has this childlike wonderment. She goes, Robert, look at that corn. I planted that from a little kernel. Do you believe? That? You know, or as sunflowers are towering up like 15 feet in the air, this glorious orange head. I planted that from a tiny little seed. <laughs> and indeed, she did. And we it's a shame that we all, you know, can't have that connection because it is a marvelous thing that Jehovah has designed into his creation, this self-replicating of plants and seeds. And it's, it is miraculous and genius. And we have some comprehension of it with, you know, we, scientists understand the DNA. It's like computer instructions, very, very complex instructions. Uh, you know, and the seed, once it gets water and it's, starts this reaction. And and one of the amazing things is pointed out that when a seed germinates, it has to quickly know which way is up. Because usually most seeds, when they germinate, they send out two sprouts, the roots, and they have to go down, and the stem has to go up and has to get a leaf out pretty quick to start the photosynthesis because there's only so much food in the germ to keep it alive. So so Jehovah designed into that some sort of tiny microscopic gyroscope 
that tells the seed which weighs up. Yeah, just think of it. If the stem grew down and the roots grew up, we'd all starve to death right quick. But anyway, you're talking about the new system of things. That's it. That's it right there. You know, everyone will plant his own vineyard. You know, and people, if you've never had a garden and never really worked it, I mean, you can throw a few seeds in the ground, they might sprout, but you really have to tend it. And that, again, is God's design because it is rewarding. But we don't have a very big garden, maybe 100 feet wide, 100 by 100 maybe. It's it's a moderate-sized garden. But it produces so much food that we can't possibly eat it all. I'm joking, I told my wife, we we have to eat faster and we have to eat more to keep up with, you know, tomatoes is exploding and peppers and zucchini. One one zucchini plant, one seed of a zucchini will produce at least 50 zucchinis. And, you know, it, it is astounding. So you really... With a small plot of land, you could feed a family of, you know, a large, large family. So when the Bible talks about each one sitting under his own vine and his own fig tree, uh, that that should give us this picture that the earth will just be producing abundantly. Like when the Israelites went into the promised land, it was a land flowing with milk and honey. Now it's pretty much a desert, I guess. But but the Israelite spies went in and they uh, they cut a bunch of grapes off of a vine. Right, you might go to the grocery store, you pick up a little bunch of grapes, put it in a bag, throw it in a cart. Eh. Well, they put this bunch of grapes over a long pole and it took two men to carry it on their shoulders. It must have weighed several hundred pounds. One cluster of grapes off of a vine. And that was, uh, you know, a few thousand years removed from the Garden of Eden. Just imagine when we learn what we're doing, you know, as gardeners, as farmers, as uh, horticulturalists, how many plants are yet to be developed, discovered even. You know, seeds can lay dormant for who knows how long? As long as they're dry, they can last for thousands of years. We might uncover seeds that, you know, of plants that we never knew existed and uh, develop them. So yeah, that once this wicked system is removed, and you know, the, God is has keen interest in the poor. If if you're doing some Bible research, uh, put the word poor into your Bible, you know, your search engine there, if you have the CD-ROM. And over and over and over again, Jehovah says he will not forever forget the poor. And you might think he's forgotten you, but he's waiting for the time when his administration takes over. This present system is just going to be wiped out, completely, literally, thoroughly wiped off the face of this earth. 
and a new system will prevail. And God is going to give that. Most, most of Jehovah's Witnesses are poor. And the, because the truth really appeals to people who uh, have nothing. Hope of a better world? Who wouldn't, who wouldn't want that? So Jehovah is going to give that earth to the poor and teach them how to live. They've shown that they're willing to do things his way. And, you know, if they pass the final test and prove that uh, we do have faith in God and aren't just following men, uh, Jehovah is going to give us the earth. And uh, I believe it. And I, I don't think that day is, is far off. Well, I've been reading a book. Uh, I don't often read books. I have, I guess, uh, I'm one of the original hyperactive kids back in the 50s, you know, the attention deficit disorder type thing. It's hard for me to, you know, really read a book day after day after day, like a big, big, thick book. But I read all the time, but, you know, articles, I read a Bible book, you know, there's, you know, a letter, essays and what have you, but... um, I've been reading a book this week that my friend Timothy put me onto, uh, a biography of William Tyndall, uh, the man who gave God a voice in English. And of course, we've all heard of William Tyndall. The Watchtower has written a fair bit about him, and that's what originally acquainted me with him. Uh, but uh, I've been quite uh, taken. I haven't finished it yet, I'm saying. <laughs> Attention deficit disorders keep me kind of uh, things pop up, email and stuff. I don't. I'm not actually reading a paper book. I my eyesight is so that I I read everything online now anyway. But William Tyndall was a fascinating man, and I'm I'm certain that uh, God used him to such an extent. I'm I'm certain that he was, you know, one of the anointed. He he was totally fixated on on. You know, he he was an educated man. He went to Oxford, and uh, he learned Latin. That was all they spoke. And they didn't speak English at Oxford then. Uh, and they say he may have gone on to Cambridge. Uh, but there you know there's some periods where they're not certain where he was or what he did. But he he changed the world. Because England was still Catholic at that time. Henry VIII had, had just uh, divorced <laughs> divorced the Pope, you might say. He divorced Catherine, but he also divorced the Vatican. And, and that was a world-changing event. But it's, it's the ignorance that prevailed, you know, the Dark Ages. They called it the Dark Ages for a reason. And the Middle Ages... It was strictly forbidden for the Bible to be written in any of the common tongues. And the the learned ones spoke Latin. The Bible was available to them in Latin. But the priest who officiated and, you know, presented the sacraments, most of them were illiterate, let alone reading Latin. So, or speaking Latin. So ignorance was just so thick. 
and superstition prevailed. But this man Tyndall had it put into his heart at a very young age. He he was going to translate the Bible. And he learned Greek, and he later learned Hebrew. He first translated what we call the New Testament, but he couldn't do it in England. I mean, one, one of his famous quotes that uh, I mentioned it in the video the other day, but he, he was at a dinner table, and they these scholars were disputing with him, cautioning him about speaking against the organization, the, the Vatican. And he said, I defy the Pope and all of his laws. And if God spares my life many more days, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. And that's exactly what happened. And the people of England were so thirsty for God's word. You know, Tyndall was forced out of England. He he realized he went to London thinking he could find some some help with some powerful people, and he didn't find it. So he fled to Germany at first, and he had to stay on the move. He hopped around from Hamburg to Frankfurt and Cologne. They were after him, and he knew the penalty. Uh, but he he stayed aloof. He ended up moving to Antwerp. But I thought his genius was he he printed well his first printing was confiscated but he did a second and third and he kept revising his text all the time and he came up with the idea of printing a small pocket-sized bible not only for convenience of the user but for ease of smuggling back into England and it was a brilliant, brilliant strategy, and it worked. And people couldn't get enough of Tyndall's Bibles. And, of course, once the Church of England was established and people started reading the Bible, it it paved the way for where we are now. But the power of that, that Vatican had to, to be broken, and uh, William Tyndall did it. There was John Wycliffe before him, but he was in the 1300s, and he he wrote a, a translation, but it was taken from the Latin, and it was in Old English, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't uh, readable really by the moderns. But anyway, Wycliffe started the Lollards. They were these itinerant preachers. Because people were hungry to hear something. The priest couldn't tell them anything. Like I say, they were as ignorant as the common people. But it's theorized that Tyndall, he, he grew up uh, close to Wales and um, Gloucestershire. Uh, it's theorized that as a young boy, he heard the preaching of the Lollards. And that planted the seed with him. So... Well, we I, we know how the story ends with Tyndall, but um, I'm going to keep plowing on through and maybe I'll talk some more about it. But as for the question, 
what signs would we look for? Jesus made it pretty simple. I mean, you could write it on a little index card, right? Nation, rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be food shortages, pestilences, earthquakes in one place after the other. And he went on to say that uh, men will become faint out of fear in uh, anticipation of the things coming upon the earth. And Jesus went on to say, when you see all of these things, know that I'm near at the door. So all of those things would happen within the life of an individual who could observe all these things. Of course, the Watchtower says that all these things began back in 1914, and not one of us was alive that long ago to witness any of the things that happened. And there was a war, obviously, World War I. The Spanish influenza and Jehovah's Witnesses believe that was the fulfillment of the sign. But we still have not seen all of these things. Even the Watchtower admits that. For example, as as I say, Jesus said the powers of the heavens will be shaken and men will become faint out of fear. In in fear of the things coming upon the inhabitants. In other words, a terrifying time. And we haven't seen that. So no individual has experienced all these things. But according to the the layout in Revelation, the sixth chapter, a scroll is opened, has seven seals, and they're taken off, clip, 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 one after the other. And we would expect in rapid sequence. And even the Watchtower admits that. But it claims that all of the seals were opened back in 1914. And that the sixth seal which betokens this you know, cataclysmic events. The sun turns black, the moon turns to blood, the stars fall from the heavens, every mountain is shaken and falls to the earth, and every island is moved from its place. So that seal was open back then, but none of the events betokened have occurred. Only preliminary shakings, is what the Watchtower says. And that's really, um, what's the word? Sophistry? It sounds plausible, but it's not at all reasonable. So my point of view is that none of these things have occurred, but they will happen in rapid succession. Wars, food shortages, global pandemics, and the whole system will come down. Apparently, they're planning to take it down. And to the intention is to destroy, once and for all, the nation-state system. Democracy. The nation-state system that arose back (laughs) during the Renaissance and was really uh, established with the United States, put it pretty far out of reach of the empire, and embedded in the Bill of Rights in the United States right off, 
freedom of religion, freedom of uh, speech, so on. And it allowed for Jehovah to finish his work. That's what Tyndall really started. He started it off. They say he's the first Puritan. And of course, the Puritans were persecuted by the Church of England. They left England just like uh, Tyndall did. First they went to Holland, and then many of them boarded boats and crossed the Atlantic and came to the United States. And their children founded the United States and broke free. And they were very religious. Religious. There have been those who've tried to, you know, rewrite history and say that, you know, they were not Christians, but half of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were ordained ministers. They were very religious and very Christian, at least in, you know, they, according to their knowledge. They didn't know the real truth, but they valued the Bible. And they valued, of course, anyone can read the life of Christ and uh, appreciate it. And they did. And so that, the United States was a, a fertile seedbed for what was to come. And Jehovah started to anoint people again in mass, grouped around Charles Russell originally and on up to the present. So where will the Watchtower stand during the finale? Well, it has served God, and it is of no longer any use to him, or it will not be. I mean, it has done a wonderful work. It continues to translate the Bible and uh, basic information into more and more and more languages. And not everyone is on the Internet, you know. And their minds haven't, you know, been poisoned against the Watchtower through all the stuff that's out there. So they, you know, just knowing something as simple as God's name. And the Watchtower has published God's name in hundreds and hundreds of languages so that people, well, for one thing, they'll know the difference between God and his son, Jesus. That's why, obviously, Satan has had God's name removed from the Bible. It makes it so much easier for the Trinitarians to do, oh, Jesus, Jehovah, it's all the same thing. Well, they're not the same by any stretch. You know, William Tyndall was the one who introduced Jehovah to the Bible. Wycliffe used God's name, but it was a different spelling with the I as before the... The J is kind of a new invention in English. Languages are always changing, that's for sure. And that's why we need revisions of, of the Bible. But people that say, oh, Jehovah is not God's name, well, people are so ignorant. It's, it's just astounding. Of course, Jehovah is not <laughs> the Hebrew pronunciation of God's name. It's a translation. Well, no, some Catholic priest just stuck a bunch of valves in there. Well, you know what I say to that? Brilliant. If he hadn't have done it, someone else would have. I would have done it. <laughs> uh, the valves he stuck in there uh, just so happened to be the correct valves. And you can determine that 
by looking at all the names, the Hebrew names, that use God's name as either a suffix or a prefix of some sort. Like, like the names that begin with Jeho, Jehoram, Jehoshaphat. That's the first two syllables of God's name. Jeho, E-O. Wasn't pronounced Jeho. They didn't have a J in Hebrew. It's Yeho. Well, you don't pronounce John Yeho, do you? John means Jehovah is salvation. Why make a big deal about the J and the Y? Yeho. Yeah. Yeho Hanan is how you say John in Hebrew. Some people think that, you know, to, to be a, a true, pure worshiper, you have to say Yahweh, Yehovah, or pronounce Jesus Yeshua. And that's pretty silly, I think. You know, Jehovah recognizes those who call upon his name in whatever language, and that is a good thing, but it also... <laughs> Jehovah's Witnesses are associated with the name of Jehovah. And unfortunately, Jehovah's Witnesses, especially the leadership, have brought reproach upon the name of Jehovah. And they've done that uh, in many different ways. The child abuse is probably the most horrific I won't go into all the slimy details, but Jehovah does say that he will no longer allow his name to be profaned. So, God must recognize that certain people use his name and that the people that use his name have profaned it. He foresaw that centuries ago, and he of course, explains that he will no longer allow them to do that. That's what I point forward to, the coming of Christ in the name of Jehovah. He comes in the name of his Father, just like he did in the first century, and he cleans the temple, just like he did in the first century. The Watchtower says, yeah, he came in 1918 and cleansed the temple, and uh, that just ain't so. Well, anyway, I'm glad to be back podcasting. And uh, what's the byline? Until we talk again, may Jehovah bless your search for the truth.